This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. Hey, what you sipping on over there? I got my Trulies again. Does it taste better knowing that you didn't have to go out into the wild to retrieve it? Why don't you tell the people? Yeah, I had my Trulies delivered to me. (laughs) Thank you, Instacart. (laughs) At least the person that delivers my booze, I at least know him. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mo Gap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. He also brought me two bottles of 19 Crimes. You know, they made this 19 Crimes as rosé that I'm very excited to try. Yes. Do you love doing the little thing with your phone where you hold it over the label? I don't really do that. I know it does that. I, I forget that it does what? that. But I did get the Snoop Dogg one. Oh, good. That does it. So <laughs> my mom loves Snoop Dogg. <laughs> do you remember? I remember this in high school. They had a Snoop Dizzle Televizzle. Remember he had a, it was either he had a TV show or a channel. What? My mom never missed an epi. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. What was it called again? Snoop Dizzle Televizzle. I love how I just remembered that. Like it just like came to me. I don't Full I don't recall Snoop Dizzle Televizzle. Well, you missed out, obviously. Your mom never missed an episode. <laughs> she did not. You would be surprised the things you learn about her, or maybe you wouldn't, but I remember one time I was watching a documentary about notorious B.I.G. and P. Diddy and like Suge Knight and just like all of that drama mm-hmm. of like, you know, it was some like documentary or whatever. Right. Deep in the rap game when Notorious B.I.G. was shot. And my mom walked in as I was watching it. And she was like, oh, I remember all this. And she starts connecting all the dots and is like, tell me, she's like, oh, Suge Knight. And she like goes in all of this. And I was like, excuse me, what? Excuse me, who are you? And excuse me, oh, yeah. you thought I did of- weed because of my Bob Marley album? Yeah, but don't, yeah. <laughs> she draws a hard line between rap and reggae, you know? <laughs> don't. That's interesting. That, so. I would not have thought yeah, your you mom know. to be a, a a big rap fan. Right, yeah. Me either. Noop Dizzle Televizzle. <laughs> yeah, look it up. That was before I feel like his like Martha Stewart days. You know? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> He's like really tight with Martha right now. Like her husband. I didn't they know. They do that. like all this stuff together. Oh my god. <laughs> there's a, there's so much like Martha Stewart and Snoop Dogg content. 
<laughs> oh no, that's hilarious. Do you know what else is hilarious that I can't stop listening to? What? Our Red Flags mini creep that's on, that's on the Patreon. Yes. It is very good. I have some housekeeping items. One, if you haven't signed up for our Patreon, it's just getting better and better. Second, <laughs> we have a P.O. box, and I want the people to send us mail. That would so, be so exciting. It's P.O. box, what is it? 43296. That's P.O. box, 43296. Louisville, Kentucky, 40253. Yeah, please join our Patreon. If you would like more from us, we have... What, five full-length bonus episodes now? Mm-hmm. All of them are like the true story behind a different movie. We're recording February's tomorrow, so that should be out mid-February. And then yes. uh, that's at the $5 level, and you get a shout-out on the podcast. If you jump up to the next level, the $7 level, you get all of our mini-creeps. They're on totally different stuff. We have some true crime mini-creeps. We've got some, like, am I the asshole type stuff. Uh, we just played Red Flags. <laughs> on the one we dropped this week. And we should retitle that episode The Bars on the Floor. The Bar, The Bars on the Floor. Fantastic time. You also get a card with our autographs and a sticker in the mail with that. But you have to give us your address if you want yes. stuff in the mail. So it's going to be my other housekeeping item. When you sign up, make sure you put your address in there. Patreon's not going to send you anything. It's all just going to come from us. And then uh, we have one more level at the $10 level. And that gets you... 20% off of merch. So sign up, patreon.com slash true crime creepers. It's an awesome way to support the show if that's something you're interested in. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Creepers. So let's dive into this case. I'm ready to jump into this because the episode this week is very timely. This episode involves a call to action for every single person listening. Ooh. We never do cases like this, but in less than 80 days from the airing of this episode, Texas will execute an innocent woman for a crime that most likely never even occurred in the first place. And if that happens, 
This will be the most horrific miscarriage of justice that we have ever talked about on this podcast. There is a petition, and I'll link it in the show notes, as well as details on actions you can take after signing the petition. But we have to do everything we can to stop this murder from happening. And this is the story I'm telling you today. All right, a big thank you to the documentary, The State of Texas versus Melissa Lucio, which is streaming oh, on... Finally! Did you watch it? No, I sent you a screenshot of this. And I was like, hey, I want to know what happened here. <laughs> Maybe that's why it was in my, in my notes. So a big thank you to that documentary. It's streaming on Hulu. Everyone go watch it, as well as a huge thanks to an episode of the podcast, Wrongful Convictions, which is an awesome podcast hosted by Jason Flom who's a founding board member of the Innocence Project. And they did an episode on this case. And the majority of this information comes from those two sources, as well as some of like the appellate court summaries. I think this is maybe not true, but maybe I'm thinking of a different one. Is this if this woman is executed, she would be the first woman executed in Texas? That can't be true. First Hispanic woman. And I don't think it's just in Texas. I think it's in the country. Like, I think she's the first Hispanic woman on death row. Yeah. You know how whenever uh, we had to put our sincere apology out for West Virginia, and I was like, listen, I'm a ride or die Texas girl, but there's things I hate. This is it. This is the thing I hate, I think. Yeah. I think Texas has some really amazing forward thinking policies when it comes to the criminal justice system. Like, there are many things that I am impressed with. This is the worst. (laughs) And we'll get into it a little bit, but not even just this case, just our whole view on the death penalty. Do you know the comedian Ron White? He did the blue collar comedy tour. Uh, obviously, okay. yes. So While my mom was watching Snoop Dogg <laughs> Televizzle, Snoop Dizzle Televizzle. You were watching, watching the blue collar comedy tour? Same. I watched it all the time when I was in high school, middle school. And Ron White had this bit that I thought was hilarious when I was younger that I no longer think is funny at all. Is it about putting it in the express line? Yes. He said, most states are trying to do away with the death penalty, which we've seen in most of our cases, like people aren't like, like other states are not executing people anymore. And he said, my state's putting in an express line. And I was like, so funny that Texas, like, ha ha. And now it's just disgusting to me because it's true. When you learn more and you have more information, your opinion changes, which I have experienced firsthand just from the very first episode of this podcast when you asked me, what is your opinion on the death penalty? And one, I was terrified because that was like the first thing you asked me on mic. I was like, oh, okay, with the heavy hitters. But I mean, just in this year, I've learned so much more. So it's just crazy. I mean, my opinion has changed. And it's been the same for me, too. I mean, this has been a learning experience, a learning process for me, too. and. It definitely is true. You know, the more you know. It's okay to change your mind. Like, it's okay to change your mind. And it's okay to know that you were wrong. It's okay to know that you had a shitty opinion. And then (laughs) you change it. You don't have to double down. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to double down. Like, it's okay to admit that you had a crappy opinion at one point in your life. Because you didn't have enough information, maybe. Or your your worldview was different, or the people around you, you know, you were influenced by different things. I mean, who knows? But... Yeah, I think it also all comes down to information or empathy. I mean, just looking at it from somebody else's shoes. Yeah. All right. So it was 7 p.m. on Saturday, February 17th, 2007, when paramedics were dispatched to an apartment. 
There, they found two-year-old Mariah Alvarez unresponsive, lying on her back in the middle of the floor in the apartment. She wasn't breathing, and she had no pulse. Her body was covered with bruises in various stages of healing. Her arm looked like it had been broken for several weeks. She had a bite mark on her back, and some of her hair had been pulled out. (sighs) At the scene, Mariah's mother, 40-year-old Melissa Lucio, told police and paramedics that Mariah had fallen down the stairs, and that must be where the injuries came from. Melissa lived in the apartment with her partner, Robert Alvarez, and nine of Melissa's 12 children. Oh, okay. She would go on to have a total of 14, eventually. Seven of these children that were living with them were also Roberts. Okay. The paramedics on the scene said that Melissa's behavior was so far out of the ordinary that he put it in his report. He especially noted that when they arrived that night, Melissa wasn't even within an arm's reach of Mariah. She wasn't trying to help her or do anything for her. Mariah was transported to the hospital emergency room, but she was dead on arrival. (gasps) The Texas Rangers, which are the investigative arm of the Texas Department of Public Safety, launched an aggressive homicide investigation headed by Ranger Victor Escalon. Escalon zeroed in on Melissa immediately as a suspect because he said her behavior was just not right. She appeared distant, and she didn't seem overly distressed by the death of her daughter. But you know what we say about using behavior during a traumatic event to cast judgment on anyone, and Melissa's reactions were almost certainly a result of living a life that was just rough as hell. Melissa was born in Houston. Shouts. (laughs) And when she was three, her dad left, and her mom picked up the family and moved them all to Harlingen, Texas which is in the Rio Grande Valley, right at the southernmost tip of Texas on the Mexican border. But my friend Carla would like everyone to know that locals just call it the The valley. valley. My cousin lived there, the one that has, you know, the 10 kids. When she moved back from Georgia, she lived in Harlingen for like a... Okay, so maybe that's just the thing to do in Harlingen is have... (laughs) She um, had her 10 kids before. (laughs) A dozen kids. Yeah, I texted Carla to ask her like how to say Rio Grande. Is it Rio Grande? Is it Rio Grande? Because like, I know Grande is pronounced Grande, but I hear Rio Grande, Rio Grande. And she was like, basically like, white people say grand, <laughs> Mexicans <laughs> like, say grande. Girl. And I was like, okay, noted. And then she was like, but everybody just calls it the valley. And I was like, I know, but I can't just call it the valley <laughs> on the podcast. Can you not? And she I don't was know. Like, I feel like I, well. Well, because people wouldn't know what the valley is. Oh, you know? right. So I'm like, like I can't that. just say, she lived in the valley. Like, you know what that means. But, you know, people in like other places don't. <laughs> There's other places. There's other valleys. <laughs> Much more famous valleys, actually. <laughs> Anyways, so Melissa's mom moved the whole family down to Harlingen, and her mom just had a string of boyfriends in Harlingen, and not a one of them was a winner. When Melissa was seven years old, her mom's boyfriend started molesting her. <sighs> when she tried to tell her mom about the abuse, she was basically told to shut up to never say that again because it wasn't true. In the documentary, her mom said she didn't believe her because she was just so little. And, you know, little kids just always making up stuff about things they don't understand and wouldn't even know happen. No. No, no, no. But don't worry. Her mom said she deals with what happened by just not thinking about it. So... 
Melissa says that after that abuse began, she just allowed herself to become a victim to other family members, which obviously we know that victims of sexual abuse don't allow anything to happen. But that's how she sees it. She sees it as she just allowed herself to become a victim. Well, I'm sure. I mean, she tried saying something and then. Yeah. Wasn't and believed. that. Yeah. And that probably just was like the last hope. So to escape the abuse in her house, Melissa married the first boyfriend she ever had when she was 16 years old. Unfortunately, her marriage wasn't a much better situation than the one she was leaving behind. Her husband was an abusive alcoholic who introduced her to drugs. They started having kids right away. And by the age of 24, she already had five children. Oh, my God. At the age of 24, I felt like I was an adult because I finally had coffee in my pantry. It made me feel grown up. <laughs> At the age of 24, I think I was still like, can't even, I don't even know what I was doing. Yeah, I was still calling my mom for like every single thing. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I was like still picking up ships at the waffle. Oh, Yeah. It was around this time that her husband just up and left her one day, leaving her as a single mom with all these kids at 24 years old. But soon she met Robert Alvarez and went on to have seven more kids with him. I hope Robert's a winner. So I don't know. I, I don't have a whole lot of details on the relationship with Robert. They did drugs together, so he wasn't like the most stand up. But yeah, that's a red flag. I never heard any stories of abuse from him. So. You know, the bar the bar's on the floor there. At least he the didn't ab abuse her. Yeah. Melissa had a tough time caring for so many children, obviously. To try and support the family, Melissa and Robert worked all different kinds of odd jobs. They lived in poverty, in one or two bedroom apartments, never enough space for all of those people. At times, their water would get turned off and they'd flush the toilets with buckets of water. At one point, they became homeless and slept in a park for six weeks. The kids all relied on the school for food and hygiene, but the kids have some fond memories of their childhood as well. Every day after school, they would walk to a place called Loaves and Fishes, which is like a charitable dining hall, and they would get a hot meal, and then they would walk to the park nearby and play. But Melissa was struggling with her own demons. Her first husband had introduced her to drugs, and now she and Robert would do drugs together. It seems mostly cocaine was their drug of choice. She's not getting any awards for Mother of the Year here. Her brother, Renee, said he'd go by Melissa's house and it was always like loud and crazy. There was no discipline with the kids from the parents. And he said Melissa would lock herself in the bathroom while she got high and stay in there for hours until she sobered up because she didn't want her kids to see her like that. But of course they did. And she was using drugs while she was pregnant with Mariah, who was her youngest. So it wasn't a huge surprise when she was born with cocaine in her system. And this also might be why Maria was born with her feet turned in slightly. Mariah. Mariah. And as she grew up and learned to walk, this made her pretty accident prone. Because of the drugs in Mariah's system, when she was born, CPS got involved. All of the kids were taken from Melissa and they were all split up into different foster homes. While they were in foster care, CPS documented that there was a ton of violence between the siblings, especially the older kids who were used to being the disciplinarians to their younger siblings, and they really resented that role. 
And then the boys who were just really rambunctious, like they loved the WWE, they would pretend to be the wrestlers, like always play fighting, like that kind of thing. Yes, my brother body slammed me no less than like four times a week. And he would yell, he would get on the couch and look me up like, body slam on my mom's waterbed. Like, and we had a good life, you know? Right. They like just subpar, but they you know. played really rough. And it was also documented throughout the kids' stay in foster care that little Mariah had several tumbles and falls. She had an especially tough time with stairs because of her feet being turned in, and she fell down the stairs several times while she was in foster care. When CPS removes kids from their home, the goal is always reunification. They want to get them back with their parents. But there's usually a list of things the parents have to do on their end to get them back. And this can vary from case to case. But it could include things like attend a drug rehab program, find and keep employment, take anger management or parenting classes, submit to random drug tests, that kind of thing. Melissa and Robert did what they needed to do. And finally, two years later, CPS returned the kids to them. This is 88 days before Mariah's death. After all the kids came back, there were nine that were living in the apartment with Melissa and Robert. I'm assuming the other three were older by this time and living on their own. Hmm. The family was living in a second-story apartment that was accessed by this really old, rickety wooden staircase that was on the exterior of the building. CPS told them that that apartment was not safe, the stairs were too dangerous, and they needed to find a different apartment. Melissa and Robert were committed to keeping their kids with them, so they found a ground floor apartment that had just like two or three steps up to the front door, and they were planning the move to begin on February 15th, 2007. Anyone who has ever moved in their entire life knows what a giant hassle it is, and I couldn't imagine trying to move with like nine kids in tow, especially when many of them are still little. Yeah, when I have to move, I turn into a child. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. When I have to move, I pay somebody to do it for me. <laughs> we were moving in and I had my couch wouldn't fit up the like stairwell here. It got stuck. And I was just screaming like, I'm going to throw up. Like I was so stressed because Russell was like, we're, we could just, he was kidding, but he was like, I'm going to cut the couch in half. You know, I was like, well, no, we're not doing that. I was freaking out. It was wedged in the doorway. And he was like, take my wallet go to the bar. There's a bar like attached to our leasing office. And he's like, I will text you and you can come home. And I came home and the couch was moved in, but I had to be kindly asked to leave. Like there's <laughs> a know, bar I, attached to your lease. Is that why you signed the lease? <laughs> I mean, I have renewed four times. <laughs> <laughs> like have a glass of champagne. So I couldn't imagine trying to move with like nine kids. Robert had a pickup truck, and he went back and forth from the old apartment to the new apartment, just taking loads of stuff over with one group of kids, while Melissa stayed at the old apartment with the rest of the kids, like, working on packing stuff up. So on this day, Melissa's in one of the bedrooms packing up clothes with one of the older daughters while a group of the kids were playing downstairs outside. Mariah, being the youngest at two and a half years old, she was upstairs in the apartment with Melissa and the other daughter. And I'm not sure if there was somebody else up there, like one of the other older siblings. But one of the kids that had been outside came up to the apartment to get a drink of water. And when he left, when he went back down to play, he left the screen door unlatched. And Mariah wanted to go play with her big brother. So she went to follow him down the stairs and she fell hitting her head on the pavement when she landed. <gasps> oh, 
This fuck? was witnessed by one of her brothers. I think it was Bobby, who was around seven at that time. He saw her fall down the stairs and hit her head on the pavement. So Melissa came running out and she went to check on Mariah and she didn't see any serious injuries or broken bones or anything like that. And Mariah wasn't acting like she was hurt. She wasn't crying or anything. So she just took Mariah back upstairs and they continued packing, unaware of the symptoms of a head injury that Mariah was showing. By February 17th, two days after the fall, the family was moved into the new apartment. Mariah hadn't really had the same appetite since the fall and she'd been more lethargic than usual. But it wasn't until she lost consciousness that Melissa and Robert realized anything was even wrong. Had she like thrown up? I know that's a big one. There was nothing said about her throwing up. As soon as Robert realized that Mariah was unresponsive, he called 911. When the paramedics showed up and saw all those injuries, all those bruises, and Melissa told them that Mariah had fallen down the stairs, the paramedics didn't realize that the family had just moved. They're thinking she means the two steps, like going up to their front door. And they're like, no way, that's ridiculous. Like they immediately think she's lying and that she's covering up what really happened to Mariah. Mariah was initially examined in the ER by a physician named Vargas, who said she had bruising covering her entire body, bite marks on her back. One of her arms had been broken sometime between two and seven weeks before, and that portions of her hair had been pulled out. But he said he saw no signs of a head injury. By the time police go in for the interrogation with Melissa, this is the information they're coming with. Plus the information from the paramedics about Melissa being distant and looking like she didn't care about her daughter dying. So police are already coming into the interrogation, knowing in their minds that the only explanation for all of this is horrific, violent abuse. And it had to have been done by Melissa, Mariah's primary caretaker. Why are they just automatically assuming it couldn't be Robert too? I don't know. And I, I don't have this in my script, so this is as good a time as any to throw in there. Robert was charged for like, I don't know, basically like allowing this to happen and not doing anything to stop it. And I think he served like four years in prison. He's really not a part of this story after this, because there's just a lot that I wanted to focus on. But that is what happened with him. (laughs) So it's just interesting. Yeah, I think that I don't know that or any of the older kids that were also disciplining the younger ones, you know, but they just zeroed in on Melissa. And we are talking about a person who has never stood up to a man in her whole life, a person who believes that she allowed men to abuse her from the time she was seven years old, a person who is not assertive at all. Someone like that forms defense mechanisms to deal with all that abuse. And a very common defense mechanism for that is dissociation. This is when a person enters a hypnotic state or just shuts down And it is how victims of abuse endure the abuse. They shut down, they go somewhere else, they dissociate. It is a very common defense mechanism of abuse victims and a huge reason why victims of abuse, especially when they are women, always make terrible witnesses at trials because juries don't believe them. They tend to find them very cold and standoffish. Right. But it's because of of what you've had to, you know, do to survive. Yeah, this like you come out of your body almost and like I've heard so many things in like documentaries or reading of like when you're experiencing this trauma of like you really have an out-of-body experience. 
It's like that, you know? Yes. This is how people react when, you know, this is not an uncommon, this isn't doing cartwheels in the police station. You know, this is shutting down in a trauma. I just don't know sometimes why we don't approach, and maybe it's because, you know, time is of the essence, but I wish sometimes we would approach things more curious than trying to corroborate a story we already have in our mind. Like, can't we come, you know? Well, that's exactly like what you're supposed to do. That's exactly what you're supposed happening? to do. No, it's it's like Sherlock says, you know, people try to find facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. And that's when you are wrong. I knew you were close with one Sherlock. I didn't know you were close with another one. Oh, he's <laughs> my favorite. I love Sherlock Holmes. Oh, we know you love Sherlock's girl. <laughs> but that's why, hello, you had to go behind a hidden bookcase to go to the bathroom in that bar. All right. <laughs> so police arrested both Melissa and Robert that night, and they brought Melissa in for an interrogation. Melissa's interrogation was long and aggressive. She waived her right to counsel and detectives and Texas Rangers. Why? Does she think she had to like pay for it herself? Or... What gets so many people in trouble, you just know you have the truth on your side. You know you didn't do anything wrong, and so you don't think you need a lawyer. So why would you try to get one? Right, yeah. I could. I definitely could see that. So anyways, she did. She waived her right to counsel, and detectives and Texas Rangers were basically just tag-teaming it. They'd come in and out of the room telling her to tell them what happened. And so she would tell them what happened, and they would say, that's impossible, you're lying, look at all these bruises. Tell us what you did. They tell Melissa that Mariah was beaten to death. And Melissa denies everything. She said she never beat her children. But she said during this interrogation that they were very vulgar, very rough, and very persistent. She said they wanted her to admit to something that she wasn't even capable of doing to her children, which is backed up by all of her kids and even CPS, who removed the kids from her home due to neglect, not due to violence. Again, we are not talking about the mother of the year here, but we're also, you know, not talking about a murderer. Yeah, like, should she be on death row because she's a bad mom? Because if so, I got got a line going out the door. My God. This interrogation went on for six or seven hours until three o'clock in the morning. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That's wild. Like, then you're not even coherent. Uh, Exactly. And they're asking her questions like, are you a cold-blooded killer or were you just a frustrated mom who took it out on her? And then you're like, no, I'm just tired. I'm just tired. They kept pointing fingers at her, threatening her, telling her she'd spend the rest of her life in prison and wouldn't be able to see her kids grow up or get married. She tried to tell the police that older injuries on Mariah could be the result of playing rough with her older siblings or just because she's an accident-prone kid, something that is well-documented by CPS because of her little feats turned in. But they don't believe her. Eventually, the Texas Ranger, Escalon, wore her down enough that she told him that she was responsible for Mariah's bruises. But she would never admit to being responsible for the death because she knew she wasn't responsible for that. Why was she responsible for the bruises? So I take that as two options, mostly uh, a coerced statement of I'm going to admit to something because I've been in here, it's three o'clock in the morning, and they've worn me down. But also that she's responsible for Mariah's bruises in the way that she's responsible for her child and the safety of her child. And Mm. 
She wasn't there when Mariah fell down the stairs, and she wasn't there to protect her. And so she is responsible for that. But not that it's her fault, not that she pushed her or intentionally murdered her or beat her to death. Yeah. I also, I mean, I'm not 100%. I I haven't heard enough yet. I still feel very like this whole situation is odd. But Mm -hmm. I could also see when you're like, they already think I did this thing. Like you were saying, like, I'm going to admit to this because maybe then they'll think I'm telling the truth about the other thing if I told the truth about this thing. Right. If I say that I'm responsible for the bruises, maybe they will believe that I was not responsible for her. Yeah. So, So after she says that, after she says I'm responsible for the bruises, they give her this baby doll. And this thing is so, this whole part of the interrogation video is so weird. I already hate this. It's so cringy. It's, I already hate it. It's the worst to watch. They give her this baby doll and they tell her to show them how she would have hit Mariah. Ugh. And so at first she's just giving her like wax on the butt a little bit. But the l- police keep telling her, no, look at the bruises on her legs and, and look at this and look at that. You, you know you hit her harder. Show us how you did it. Like they're encouraging her to hit the doll harder. And so she hits the doll a little harder and then she looks at them like she's looking for them to approve or like tell her she she did it right. Is that what you wanted me to do? You know, that kind of thing. They also wore her down enough that they got her to confess to things that she had no knowledge of and no part in. Detectives were told that there was a bite mark on Mariah's back. In fact, they later even brought Melissa and Robert to a dentist to get a mold of their teeth to try and match it to the bite mark. Because Melissa had admitted in this interview that she was the one that had bit Mariah. But another medical expert examined this so-called bite mark and said it wasn't even a bite mark. He said the, the mark were parallel striation bruises on her shoulder blade from falling down a flight of stairs. And side note, bite mark evidence has been used across the country in many criminal prosecutions. It was a big deal in the trial of the only serial killer you've ever heard of, Ted Bundy. But there's actually no real scientific support or research into the accuracy or reliability of bite mark evidence. So basically, it's junk science, which I was never aware of. Hmm. Later, the defense brought on a psychologist named Dr. John Pinkerman to analyze the interrogation videos. And he said that Melissa hadn't eaten all day. She was never offered any water during this interrogation. As far as, as he could tell, she'd never been allowed any bathroom breaks. And also at this time, Melissa was currently pregnant with twins. Oh, my goodness. And these are circumstances that are very conducive to getting people to confess to things. Dr. Pinkerman watched the tapes of her with that doll and said it seemed like Melissa was saying, well, if I did it, that's how it would have been done. He didn't think she was showing actual behaviors that she had actually done. The psychologist said there was likely something more going on here because Melissa's history and personality just didn't fit the nature of the crime. All of Melissa's children were interviewed, and none of them so much as hinted that Melissa had ever been violent with them. None of them said she'd ever physically disciplined them, especially to the extent of causing a death. You know, again, I'm not saying she was mother of the year, or even that she wasn't a neglectful parent. There were definitely some major issues there. But she wasn't physically abusive. Especially, I think, what, Mariah was her 12th child? Her 12th child. Some of the older kids, even the ones that have now, like, graduated out mm-hmm. of the home, I feel like would have heard something. Yeah. Prior? I mean, I don't know. I yeah, know that you like, can't, like, depend on that. Is but. she just going to wait till the 12th child to suddenly become this horrible person, but also not let anybody see her doing it? 
when you've got 10 people around you at all times in a two bedroom apartment, like and nobody sees you taking her to a separate room. (laughs) Right? What room? Where? Yeah, there's nobody in that room. They're all in the other room. I don't think so. And then have more children after that. Right. To, to be then pregnant after that. Right. Regardless, Melissa was charged with capital murder and brought to jail. She'd never been arrested before, much less incarcerated, so she had no idea what to expect. But she says she just knew that somehow, some way, she would be reunited with her children one day. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject here available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. A few days after Mariah's death and after this interrogation, the chief forensic pathologist for Cameron County was brought in to perform the autopsy. Her name was Norma Jean Farley, and when she saw Mariah's body, she was horrified. Bruises head to toe, on her face, in her hair, on her chest, abrasions and scrapes to her neck. She said she immediately knew that this was the worst case of child abuse she had ever seen. See, that's my thing. Like, that's where I'm at because I don't know. I mean, I was so clumsy. Like, I know kids are clumsy. Like, I taught kindergarten. I know kids are like (laughs) laying on walls and stuff. 
But we're talking like bruises head to toe on her head. I mean, I, I don't know. I think that's more than like roughhousing, you know, with older siblings. Yeah. Yeah. She did an internal examination to try and figure out the actual cause of death, and she determined that it was from blunt force trauma to the head, and she ruled it a homicide. So she died from actual blunt force trauma for being hit in the head. Yeah. At Melissa's arraignment, she met her defense attorney for the first time, who was a man named Peter Gilman. And Gilman told Melissa that the DA had offered her a plea deal of 30 years, and he suggested that she take it. But Melissa said she wasn't guilty. Peter said, hey, look at the bright side. You're 38 years old. That means you'll be 68 when you get out and you'll be able to see your children again. And you might get out earlier, right? Well, I don't know the details of this plea deal, if it was like a hard 30 or if there was going to be a chance of parole. Probably it was 30 years. But Melissa and her family were certain there would be someone on the jury that would believe her. And Melissa also figured that her children would be able to testify because they'd been there. They'd seen Mariah fall down the stairs. They could also testify that they'd never seen Melissa hit Mariah. So thinking she had all of this on her side to prove her innocence, she turned the deal down. But it's also like, what if you didn't do it? Uh And it's just that she fell. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's hard. Like, I would, I'm sure if I knew I was innocent, I would definitely want to do the same thing. But now I've listened to many of these podcasts, I'd probably... (laughs) I mean, there's no way I'm taking 30 years for a crime I didn't do. There's no way. I know. But it's also like there's no evidence pointing to the theory that you were saying happened. Yeah, there is. There's all these witnesses that saw her fall down the stairs. Well, yeah. So. But they're just like all those witnesses are your children. Like it would be nice if there was a witness that wasn't related to you. Yeah, but, you know, you can do forensic interviews with kids. There can be people that are. Yeah. And sure, yeah, it would be nice to have a different, but I would never take 30 years on the chance that they're going to find me guilty. I'd rather risk the death penalty. There's absolutely no way I would take 30 years. That's your whole life. I mean, that's your whole life. What, I'm going to get out at 70? You know, I'm not trying to hang out in prison. No, that's not a deal. <laughs> 30 years. <laughs> I like that they still call it that. <sighs> well, maybe I need to quit listening to this podcast then. You no, know? you should definitely keep listening to this podcast so you know not to take a 30-year deal. Okay, well, you're over here like, would you help me hide a body? And the answer is no, because I'm not doing that. I'm not taking the deal. I would also never have a body that you would need to hide. So (laughs) you're safe there, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) So Melissa's trial begins in 2008. And this was a historic trial because if Melissa were to be found guilty and get the death penalty, she would be the first Hispanic woman on death row. The district attorney of Cameron County at the time was named Armando Villalobos, and he really wanted to use this case to improve his reputation. He was up for re-election that year, but right before Mariah died, there'd been this bit of a situation that had been pretty embarrassing for his office. Oh, I love embarrassing situations. Okay, well, you'll love this embarrassing story. There was this guy, Ahmet Livingston who had pled guilty to murder. But as part of his plea deal, he was allowed to like go put his affairs in order before he had to go to prison. And of course, he completely disappeared. They totally yeah. lost him. I'm like, you didn't have a tracking device on him? Like people you didn't send him with an on, escort? You right. What? You just were like, 
go off, deal with your stuff and make sure you you meet us back here at the prison on Monday, okay? Yeah, you come back now, you hear? (laughs) They ended up finding him like 10 years later in India, like in India. (laughs) Oh, but that's better than running off to Mexico and ordering a pizza. (laughs) But at this time, he was nowhere to be found. So they need to look like they're tough on crime, you know, so he can get reelected. And Melissa's case was the one he was going to use to show just how tough he was on crime. This was also... it's a woman, too. It's a woman. This is an area heavily dominated by Catholics. So he knew that fighting child abuse would really help his situation, help his press. And he ended up being a major part of the trial, something DAs usually don't do. I tried to find actual stats on this because it was mentioned in the Wrongful Conviction podcast. And all of my background knowledge comes solely from Law and Order, which I feel like is not the most reliable source. But my understanding is that it's usually hired prosecutors, like assistant district attorneys, ADAs, that try cases. Hey, don't we have an attorney uh, that's finally slid into our DMs? Yes. Maybe they can weigh in on this. We do. <laughs> yeah, I'll email them. <laughs> so it's usually like the hired prosecutors, the assistant district attorneys that try cases, not the elected officials. But yeah. Lobos was all over this case. He examined witnesses at the trial and even gave the closing arguments. So Melissa's defense attorney, Gilman, he seemed to have no strategy in this case. His entire defense was basically, hey, she admitted that she abused the child, so the jury should believe her when she said she didn't hit her in the head. Yeah, that's not doing it. No, and that's almost word for word from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals document that that was what his whole defense argument was. Oh my God. Gilman is interviewed in the documentary and just seems to truly despise this woman. He calls her a bad mother, a child abuser. He doesn't have one kind word to say about her, one good word to say about her. He says that she was very reserved, very docile, and that she didn't have much expression. And he said it was difficult to try and defend someone that didn't seem to want a defense attorney. And that it just seemed like she thought everything was going to be all right and that she didn't have to say anything. What do you mean she doesn't want a defense attorney? That's your job. Like, your job, she thinks she's innocent. She's innocent, maybe. Yeah, I guess just that she was so reserved and so docile and wasn't, like, talking as much and wasn't, like, participating in her defense as much. But it's like, people that look like you, dude, have been violating her and molesting her and sexually assaulting her since she was seven years old. So... Like, she has Yeah, I mean, I forgot issues. about that part. I was just even thinking, like, maybe she's truly not that worried because she didn't do it. I think there's part of that, too. It's like with the waving of the lawyer. Like, you just don't, you don't know how to play the game. You're not, you know, you don't know. I don't know. I don't, I am not convinced. I don't know. I just don't understand how she was so bruised and all of this stuff. Yeah. But my thing is, too, and, you know, we will address that, but. Even if it was abuse, how are you going to say it was for sure her? But it's because she confessed. It's because she said she was responsible for Mariah's bruises in that interrogation. It's because she didn't try to blame it on somebody else that yeah. she's on trial. That's literally it. That's that's her whole case. And again, like I'm not saying I think that she should get the death penalty, which I'm very proud of myself that I think I've learned more information and my opinion on that system has changed. But... I just have a lot of questions. Yeah, I think this is one of those cases where 
Like my obviously my opinion on the death penalty is I think it needs to be completely abolished. So if we are going to have a death penalty, it needs to be no question, like no question, not she was found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. It needs to be beyond, beyond, beyond a reasonable doubt. It needs to be 1000% certain based on mm-hmm. a video documenting it, based on tons of physical and and DNA. And there's just some cases where that's not available. And this is one of those cases. This should not be a death penalty case. Yeah. I also have lots of more information for you on why she didn't do it. So lots of more information. Lots of more. So a mitigation specialist is someone that's assigned in all capital cases. And basically their entire job is to try to avoid getting the death penalty. So the mitigation specialist assigned to Melissa's case was a social worker named Norma Villanueva, who was a licensed counselor that had skills that Gilman did not, especially when it came to like interviewing people and getting sensitive information out of them. But Gilman wouldn't let Villanueva talk to Melissa's kids until pretty late in the trial. Like he just wouldn't give her access to them. But once she was able to speak to them, she uncovered something huge. Also, why wouldn't we want her to speak to the children if the whole point is to find out what really happened? Because perhaps you... Well, this is her defense attorney. Yeah, I know. But still, like, I just don't... I have theories on that that I'll share later. Did this go... This had a jury, right? Yeah, it was a jury trial. Oh, that's like what I'm most interested in hearing. You know? Yeah. Yeah, well... If you were a jury on this trial, you would be disappointed. Actually, well, don't worry. I'll never get to be a juror because of this podcast. You don't know that. That's just Bob Ruff's theory. <laughs> <laughs> That's just what Bob says. <laughs> Bob. All right. So she uncovers something huge. Do you want to know what it is? Yes. yes. Thank you. Okay. One of Melissa's kids, her daughter, Alexandra, she's one of the older kids, very bravely admitted to Villanueva that she had been responsible for Mariah falling down the stairs that day. What? She'd been really angry at Mariah that day. Mariah was little and she was getting in the way of the other children playing. And she said that it was her fault that Mariah had fallen. Like she pushed her? I don't know exactly. I honestly don't think anybody pushed her. I cut this part out, but I kind of do want to say it. So I'll just try to remember what I had written. But basically, then... So she ended up uncovering other information about Alex being like very abusive towards Mariah, like the oldest daughter, Daniela, who was the oldest child, she went to Gilman to tell him about seeing Alex like slam Mariah's head on the pavement. Even Alex said she never bonded with Mariah. She didn't really look at her like a sibling. She was taken away from the home at two, and she really had only known her for 88 days, so they didn't have this, like, sibling bond. How old was Alex? She was, like, still in high school. So, Villanueva immediately brought this to Gilman's attention. This was the compelling alternate theory that the case needed. Something to explain the fall and that it wasn't Melissa's fault. But Gilman told her not to convey that information to anyone else because it would have resulted in criminal charges against Alex, the daughter. And Vinoeva pushed back, saying Alex isn't his client, Melissa is. But Gilman remained firm. He told her, do not repeat this information. That's so weird. Yeah. 
Gilman said that he didn't have any of the kids testify because he spoke with them and he never had a feeling that any of them could tell him what happened. He didn't think they would be helpful and he said they were so undisciplined they would probably just get up at the front of the courtroom and just run around like they were playing. He said they were incapable of sitting still long enough to testify and that it would have just upset the jury. And you don't want to do anything to upset the jury. But there are actually tapes of the police interviews with the kids, and they're sitting just fine. And they're answering the questions they're being asked just fine. So if that's actually his reason, which I don't think it is, then it was predicated on his own assumption about these kids. Right. Like, I definitely think there was a lack of discipline in the house, but I think they could sit still in a courtroom and not be playing around. Like, they're not stupid. They're kids. Right. Like, I think they're going to realize it's like a serious thing. Nervous. Yes. Uncomfortable. Yes. So the jury doesn't hear from any of the kids, not a single one of them. (gasps) That's who I want to hear from. Yeah. None of them testify. What the jury did hear was the testimony of the forensic pathologist that performed the autopsy, Norma Jean Farley. They heard her talk about how this was so clearly child abuse, and the jury was shown the photos of Mariah's body. Dr. Farley told the jury that these injuries were caused from being beaten repeatedly over a period of weeks or months. Farley testified that because the blood pooled in Mariah's cranial vault, that she could tell that the cause of death was blunt force head trauma. And she also said that a fall down the stairs could not have possibly been the cause of this head trauma. It had to have only been being hit or like kicked or like abuse, but a fall down the stairs would not have done this. Really? That's what she said. And this is a very problematic statement for many reasons, because first off, it's not scientific. And second off, it's wrong. Of course, a tumble down the stairs can result in a head trauma. To say it wasn't from a fall down the stairs is a conclusion she drew after her initial immediate conclusion that this was the worst case of child abuse she'd ever seen. But she was the medical examiner for the county, and her testimony meant a lot. Like, she was a very credible witness. hmm I wonder if someone would have admitted to pushing Mariah down the stairs if she would have said that, like, that it could have been caused by that. Do you know what I mean? Like, if it was confirmed that someone pushed her down the stairs, and the question is, like, who or whatever— Because to me, it sounds like we're saying she would have just said, well, this was she probably would have just said this was not the result of that fall then. Like it was her being hit or punched or whatever. Okay. In the wrongful conviction podcast, they had a doctor on named Thomas Young, who was also in the documentary and is a forensic pathologist as well, just like Norma Jean Farley. He'd been contacted by Melissa's appellate attorneys and asked to review evidence and the autopsy findings on Mariah's case. And we'll get into a little bit more about what he found later. But I wanted to bring up something he said in the podcast here. He talks about this idea in forensic pathology that you can just look at a body and work your way backwards, determining everything that happened to that body. Like if you've ever watched Bones, which I know you haven't because I saw your posts in the Facebook group. But (laughs) like all the shows you've watched where there was like seven. Yeah. But they do that all the time on that show. You know, they these bruises and that broken bone show that this is exactly what happened. But it's a lot more complex than that. And the doctor, Dr. Young, he equated it to trying to solve blank plus blank equals four. 
Like, you know you have four, but there are multiple numbers that can be put together to equal four. You can't know for certain if it's two plus two and not three plus one. Right. But what you can do is you can put that evidence, the bruises, the broken bones, whatever it is, you can put that evidence together with witness statements or any other evidence from the scene of the crime, and you can fill in some of those blanks. And what the other evidence says is that Mariah fell down the stairs. But Dr. Farley ignored all of these witness accounts to say for certain that Mariah's injuries were not a result of a fall down the stairs. The state played the tapes from Melissa's interrogation, but not the entire six or seven hours of it. Just the part at the end where Melissa claims responsibility for Mariah's bruises. The state kept calling this a confession, but it's not a confession. Saying you're responsible for bruises, that's not the same thing as saying I beat her and created and caused the bruises. Yeah, and when they played that part of the tape, I know that they like aren't required to play the whole tape, but are they at least saying there's four and a half hours of no, conversation of previous not. to this and this is like on the last hour? Okay, buddy. Um, we're going to need to take a pause. And most trial attorneys would have filed a pre-trial motion to get those statements suppressed because they're very incriminating. Usually they'd bring an expert in during the motion hearing that could testify that it was a false confession and that it had been coerced. It doesn't always work, but it's weird that he didn't even try to keep that tape from getting into trial. Weird. Yeah. At this trial, Melissa was almost completely alone in her defense. Gilman didn't really bring in anyone in Melissa's life to testify on her behalf. Not one of her kids who could have testified to the fact that Melissa had never been physical with any of them. Not even the younger kids who said they'd seen Mariah fall down the stairs, who he knew had said that. But they did put on their own expert medical witness to kind of contradict Norma Jean Farley's testimony. Mm -hmm. His name was Dr. Curry, but they chose a pediatric neurologist over a forensic scientist. So he was only allowed to testify regarding the head. He was not allowed to testify regarding the source of any other injury except the head injury. Right. So they couldn't counter the state's claim that Mariah had been severely beaten over the course of weeks or months. They couldn't put up any evidence that would say that those bruises were caused by something other than extensive amounts of beating for months. Oh my gosh. But both doctors did agree that Mariah's head injury that caused her death had to have occurred within 24 to 72 hours before she died. And what with all the moving and the packing, Melissa was never, and just all the people, Melissa yeah. was never alone with Mariah during that time, ever. Someone was always with her and would have seen her strike that blow, but no one did. Gilman did not allow anyone to testify that could have said that they'd never seen Melissa hit Mariah during that period of time or that she'd never been alone. Yeah, I need to know more about like his choices on that. Like, I just want to know what he was thinking was like, why that was a good idea. I have a theory and we will get into it. Oh, good. Gilman did try to have Dr. Pinkerman, the psychologist I mentioned earlier, testify mm -hmm. on why Melissa would have said that she was responsible when she actually wasn't. But the court refused to let him testify about that. So they had nothing to contradict her statement that she Why? was responsible. I have my theories about that as well. <laughs> and we'll get into it. <laughs> so with all the evidence allowed in at trial, or the limited amounts of evidence <laughs> allowed in at trial, it was obviously clear how this was going to go. Melissa was found guilty, and she was sentenced to death. 
the DA, Villalobos, he was front and center at the sentencing hearing because to get the death penalty, he had to prove that Melissa was a dangerous, violent person, even though she had no prior history of violence at all. Melissa's sister, Sonia, said that the prosecutors and everyone like jumped for joy when Melissa was given the death penalty. They were all laughing and high-fiving, like everyone was so happy. And fun fact, Texas is responsible for over a third of the national total of executions. So way to go, Texas. Immediately after this trial, Melissa's defense attorney, Peter Gilman, he gets a sweet, sweet job at the DA's office. What? Making more money than the prosecutors that had already been there a while. And according to the records, Gilman was actually interviewed by Villalobos himself, hired, and had accepted the job before he ever even submitted a resume to Human Resources. And the timeline on when exactly he started working for the DA is not super clear. Like, if you put that together with his nice salary and the fact that his wife was also hired on at the courthouse, that looks pretty shady. Like, it's possible he threw this case for a cushy job. Did he start working there maybe a little bit before people realized, like, while he was trying to defend Melissa? Super shady. Super shady. Like if he started working with the prosecutors ahead of yeah, time. Yeah, but if yes. that's true, the corruption train does not end with Gilman. Enter the real villain of this story. District Attorney Armando Villalobos, who, as of 2014, is serving a 13-year sentence in federal prison for the nine <gasps> counts of public corruption he was charged and convicted of. Oh, no. We got to retry this. Okay, Yes. Okay, so that's it. Turns out he was using his office for personal profit, and it went beyond just bribing judges for favorable outcomes at trial and taking bribes himself, something he did a lot. He was also involved with a drug cartel. What? He would be compensated by the cartel for favorable treatment, lesser plea deals, not revoking probation. <gasps> And he basically was just out there using his influence to get his way and intimidate people. He's working with the cartel? Yes. Okay. Okay. I still, one, I definitely don't think Melissa's mother of the year. Two. No. I probably wouldn't send her a Mother's Day card myself. But also, like, I, and I don't know who really is responsible for Mariah's death. I still feel that way. But regardless, I don't have enough evidence to apply the death penalty. And it should at least be retried. And if the same result is found, then the same result is found. But. Agreed. We have to retry this, right? The FBI had been watching Villalobos for some time, just kind of quietly building their case against him. But they decided to finally spring into action when Villalobos announced he was running for Congress. And he had every intention of winning. And he probably would have won every single case. Like you just said, every single case he has ever worked on. But especially ones like Melissa's, where he personally took over that case, it should be reexamined. Like he was, he needed this case to improve his reputation from before. You think he was going to walk into that trial without being assured of an outcome? There's no yeah. way. There's no way he hadn't paid off a judge or paid off Gilman or something. It sounds like he paid off Gilman for Gilman's shoddy defense. Yes, he needed a win so badly here. And that judge blocked a lot of evidence from being allowed in. A lot. Yeah, what happened to that judge? Nothing that I know of. Because 
all the things that you said, they didn't let the I already forgot, but they didn't let they didn't let the social worker testify that yeah. about not even about Alex. She wouldn't have testified about Alex. They would have probably had Alex come on to testify herself or another right. kid or that had seen it or something. But she was going to testify about about why she confessed. Yes. No, there was the psychologist that was going to testify oh. about why she confessed. And also the social worker. I can't remember what she was going to testify about, but he blocked that from ha- like the judge said that wasn't going to be allowed in. The judge wouldn't allow this forensic neurologist, which could this could have been Gilman's fault, too, for not getting the right kind of expert witness. But he couldn't mm-hmm. testify about anything below the, the head. Oh, my God. This is crazy. There's just so much that was blocked. And there's so much corruption here. It's insane to me that they're not looking, especially at the death penalty cases. But they should be reviewing and examining every single case that this guy was ever involved in, good or bad, honestly. That there that is crazy to me. The current district attorney of Cameron County, whose name I don't remember and don't care to know, he says, Don't worry about any of it, because this case was defended well and it was all fair and impartial, and the jurors made a decision based on the evidence. But half the evidence wasn't let in. Half the evidence wasn't let in. And I don't know what evidence he's using to determine that this was fair and impartial when you have a district attorney that's more corrupt than any person I've ever heard of, who's literally like a cartoon villain. Like, I just picture him twirling his little mustache, you know? <laughs> you see him? Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. He said that if she's executed, well, that just means the system worked because that's what the law allows. And she had her opportunity. She had her defense. She had her appeals. She was given the option to do 30 years, and she chose not to. So he said, don't blame the system. Don't blame the attorneys, because it was her choice. Don't blame the system. And I'm like, her choice, 30 years, or take your chances at trial for a crime that you didn't commit? Like, how is that her choice? He said, and this just makes my blood boil. He said, if she was arrogant enough to think, well, I'm just going to explain it away and get out of it, then she has nobody to blame but herself. He said, quote, people say she shouldn't be there. Well, whose fault is it that she's there, if not hers? Uh, And I can think of at least three. Yeah, I hate everything about that. Yeah, it was a horrible statement. And I'd also like to point out that nowhere in his statement did he say anything about her guilt, just about her choices when trying to navigate the legal system. And this is one of my biggest frustrations with our legal system, that at a point... It doesn't matter if you're innocent or guilty. Being innocent isn't a reason to get an appeal. It has to be because of like an error. And once you're found guilty, and even before, all that matters is if you've played the game right. And it's a game with a very complicated, dense, confusing, and oftentimes contradicting rule book. And there's a lot of people involved that have personal gain. Like, yeah, you know, that aren't you. Yes. Yes especially in this case. Melissa's case went through the appellate process that every death row inmate is due. Her appellate attorney, Margaret Schmucker, brought on Dr. Thomas Young, who's the forensic pathologist I mentioned earlier, the blank Mm -hmm. plus blank equals four guy. Dr. Young reviewed all the evidence and the autopsy on Mariah, and he was especially interested in the fact that all of the witnesses said that they hadn't seen any bruises on Mariah until much later after her fall until nearly her entire body was bruised. And he said, OMG, there is a scientific explanation for this. This is evidence of a brain injury. 
I hope he did say OMG. <laughs> he says that once the brain starts to fall apart, and this is really interesting, even minor motion or handling of a child will result in a bruise because they're not clotting anymore. He said that even just lying down on a bed could have caused bruises in this kind of situation and that even previous injuries will come to the surface again when your brain is going through this and shutting down like this. Ew. The body is so weird. It is so weird. And so Dr. Young said that what happened here was the forensic pathologist that did the autopsy, Norma Jean, she saw a horribly bruised child and concluded that it was child abuse, that it had to be child abuse. Something that no one ever saw, something that there's no evidence of that it ever happened. The doctor tells this to the police. This has to be child abuse. This is the worst case of child abuse I've ever seen in my life. The police obtain a confession, however coerced it might be, and they make their case. And he said it happens all the time, and a lot of people get locked up in jail for it, and it's a tragedy because it's an accident. The documentary ended with on screen text that read, All the elements depicted in this film were filed in Melissa Lucio's various appeals. All were systematically denied. She had new lawyers appointed. In July 2019, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals reversed her conviction, arguing that she was deprived of her constitutional right to present a complete defense. Less than 1% obtained this relief. The state of Texas appealed that decision, even though this case could be the poster child for ineffective assistance of counsel. But in February of 2021, the same court nullified her reversal and reinstated her death sentence. She lost. Wait, what? She lost 10 to 7, which is a very divided ruling. And that was her last appeal. Wait, can you imagine thinking that, you know, it was communicated that your conviction Mm -hmm. has been like overturned and then. Oh, never mind. Because of three people. Because three people voted one way instead of the other way. Like, why does Texas care so much to then go after that again after it's been? Well, and, and, and why? And how is all of this corruption with the DA, which he's in federal prison, so it's all known. Yeah. How is that not enough to say, okay, let's go and look at this and see what happened and, and investigate? Because... Like, Melissa's trial was brought up a little bit in his trial, but they basically had, like, bigger fish to fry with going after Villalobos. Like, so they weren't, like, investigating all of Melissa's trial particularly, you know, and, like, seeing, okay, was this judge paid off? How did this happen? Like, they had bigger stuff to go after. And what's crazy to me is, so you need 12 people to agree on a jury that a person is guilty in order for them to be found guilty. All 12 have to agree. But when this went to appeals, you know, it was reversed. And then when it was reinstated, they just needed a majority. It was 10 to 7. A majority, not even like a two-thirds majority. 10 to 7. Yeah, like, that's not a quorum. Right. And that was her last appeal. So the on-screen text said her case is now up to the Supreme Court. And if they decline to hear it, an execution date could be set by the state of Texas. Of course, on October 18th, 2021, the U.S. Supreme Court denied review of the case. And then on January 14th, just a couple weeks ago, the state of Texas has set her execution date. Melissa Lucio will be executed on April 27th, 2022, for a crime that never even occurred, unless something miraculous happens in the meantime. Why did 
the Supreme Court, not even. They only review like 1% of cases. Right. It was never going to happen. <sighs> At this point, all of our hope basically lies in the hands of Greg Abbott. And it's not totally his decision. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> My hopes are not high. It's not totally his decision, according to Action Network, and this is just directly from their website. In Texas, the governor has limited power when it comes to the death penalty, but the story we're told that it's out of the governor's hands, that's only true if we allow it to be. Yes, the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles must recommend clemency in Texas in order for the governor to grant clemency and commute a death sentence, but the fact is the governor appoints the members of the Board of Pardons and Paroles. He can choose to appoint members who will take valid claims and concerns more seriously instead of acting like rubber stamping gatekeepers. This is all from the Action Network website. I love it. <laughs> oh, is it? Yes. <laughs> Sounds like you. I know. I was. I, that's how I feel, too. I'm with you. <laughs> he can still use his position of power and influence to enact justice in the state of Texas. So my hopes are not high. But Governor Abbott, and I'm speaking directly to you now, you signed a bill into law that states that Texas has legitimate interests in protecting the life of an unborn child who may be born. Does Texas have the same legitimate interest in protecting the lives of innocent people by ensuring you don't execute them? Signed, Kristen. Signed, Kristen. I have a link in the show notes for the Action Network. There's a petition to sign, phone numbers to call, letters you can write. Please, please do something. Take one of those steps. Take all of those steps. Like, please, because this is bullshit. You know what I do think is really sad? What? Mariah died. I think that's sad. And I think, I don't know. I don't think Melissa should die, but I have a lot of questions of who is responsible for that small child. Yes, it's, it's an absolute tragedy that Mariah died. It's sad. She had her hair in these cute little pigtails. She had her little turned in feet. I and mean, she was freaking adorable. And I always try to focus my stories on the victim, which in this case would have been Mariah. I would have titled this episode, The Death of Mariah Alvarez. But it is less than 80 days before we're going to execute somebody for a crime that they did not commit. They have not proven that she committed. Right. When they kept her from getting a fair trial. And which I totally agree with, too. Like when we execute someone, well, one, I don't think we should either. But when we do, I need to know that there is no question, Mm -hmm. no question what happened. Mm -hmm. And there's too many questions. And there was too much corruption. Okay, in lieu of our shout outs tonight, I want you guys to go and make some phone calls and write an email to the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles. Sign the petition at the very least. Sign the petition. The links to all of it are in the show notes. Please, 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 please. Thank you. Bye, peeps and creeps.